So uh, a, a very, a very well-loved uh, well lady uh, was uh, returning home from church one day. It was a Sunday evening. And as she comes up the front step towards her house, uh, she sees there's somebody moving around inside. Uh, she goes in through the front door and she sees the guy rummaging through all of her cupboards and her things. Uh, she knows he's there to burgle her. She's, he's, she's being robbed. And as soon as she sees him, with a, a loud and an authoritative voice, she shouts out, Stop! Acts 2.38! And the guy stands like this. And, and the lady calls the police, and the police come. And whilst they're putting the handcuffs on the robber, the police officer says to him, so just out of curiosity, why did you stand still uh, and wait for us to come when the lady was quoting Scripture? And he says, Scripture? I thought she said she had an axe and 238s. <laughs> now... It's all right, I've, I've not been listening to Joel Olstein again, don't worry. But I want to tell you this, Acts chapter 2 verse 38 is arresting and more powerful than an Acts and 2.38s is because it changes people's lives and the scripture is powerful. Now you'll know that we've already discussed in the last few weeks that the Apostle Peter stands up together in fact with the other 11 apostles. He stands and together they preach. And Peter gave three explanations as to, <coughs> excuse me, as to what had happened at this Pentecost period. He says what had happened is that the Holy Spirit had come. And Peter quoted from, uh, if you remember, the prophecy of Joel. Uh, and we had a, a tremendously encouraging time as we looked at that prophecy together. And he explained that not only had the Holy Spirit come, but that the Holy Spirit now, and, and this was, was incredibly hard for them to understand, but the Holy Spirit now indwelt the people. It wasn't just a, a case of coming, but it was a case of indwelling, a case of living within them. The Holy Spirit now indwelt them, lived within those who had come to faith in the Savior. And Peter went on and explained how this happened. It happened because Jesus had done exactly what he said he would do, which of course was that he was raised from the dead. He ascended back to heaven and then the Holy Spirit was given. Those, and that was the order of the events that took place. And now today we look at Peter's explanation as to why it happened. Why was the Holy Spirit given? The Holy Spirit was given that people, both Jews and Gentiles, men and women, boys and girls, may be saved. Now, as Peter stands up and speaks, he provokes two questions on the part of those that are listening to him, uh, to the crowd in front of him. And it's these two questions that this morning, briefly, I want us to look at and to consider together. I believe that the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ must continually provoke and answer these two questions as we continue in our proclamation of the gospel. And the first question is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2 and uh, verse 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 2. It'll be handy if you have your Bibles uh, ready because we're going to look at a few verses. But Acts chapter 2, verse 2, and suddenly... They, uh, sorry, uh, I think that's... Um, sorry, verse 12, I meant to say, of Acts chapter 2, verse 12. And we read, So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? So that's the first question that we will be looking at, at briefly this morning. You know, we are never going to arrest the attention of many people until there is something going on that they don't understand. What do I mean by this? Well, today, it seems to me that many churches don't actually say anything different to what's going on in the world. We don't actually explain something which is different, something which is powerful, something which is supernatural. There seems to be a situation now where people are content to just accept the ordinary. But we're never going to arrest the attention of people unless there is something that they do not understand. What does this mean, they asked? And that led to an explanation of the gospel. And when Peter finished explaining it, in verse 37, they asked the second question that we consider this morning, which is this, what shall we do? So those are the two questions that we're looking at. What does this mean and what shall we do? 
You see, the people suddenly realized that they were not simply onlookers of what was going on. Peter had explained from his quotation from Joel's prophecy in chapter 2 that the Spirit would be poured out on all creatures and all people. And you remember that last time we spoke about this, I said, pinch yourself or you flesh. Don't pinch the person next to you, just yourself will do. Because the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all those who come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And it is so important that we understand what this is saying to us. Those in front of Peter and the other apostles were becoming participants as the Holy Spirit worked in them. It wasn't a case of just simply standing and listening. They knew about the Holy Spirit, but now they're told that everything is changing. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. And not only is he being poured out, but he's being poured out into and indwelling the lives of those who come to faith. If the first question led to an explanation of the gospel, then the second question led to an application of the gospel. Like it or not, the crowd in front of Peter had to do something. Now I realize that that statement is perhaps upsetting some people or causing a concern for some people. I'd like to ask that you stay to the very end and we talk this through together because we can't negate the fact that this is what Scripture says. We can't negate the fact that the example that is set of these 3,000 people here is a very powerful one. It's the first sermon that's preached in the age of the church after Pentecost and Peter stands up, as I say, with the 11 and he preaches. And as I say, there are some of us that can perhaps be uh, concerned about this because maybe for a long time in your life you've been told that there is nothing you can do concerning your salvation. There is nothing you can do in coming to faith in Jesus Christ. If you do anything, then you're making salvation a salvation of works and not of grace. But as I say, we need to read the Scriptures. We need to understand and of course, I agree that we can in no way save ourselves. It's fair to say that a lot of people try. It's fair to say that a lot of people try very hard to save themselves. In fact, many people even here this morning may have gone through that process at some point in their life of trying to be good enough, of trying to say the right things, do the right things, go to the right places, don't go to the wrong places, have the right relationships and so on. And maybe, just maybe... At the back of your mind, you're thinking to yourself, I'm close. I'm close. God's going to start liking me because I've tried so hard. Isn't it interesting that Acts chapter 5, we have the account of Peter and the other apostles. So a bit further on in Acts, uh, Acts, um, uh, Acts of the Apostles, in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles, they've been placed in prison. You remember the story well, and it's miraculous that they get out of prison. And what do they do when they get out of prison? Because they're thrown into prison because they've been preaching the gospel. So when they get out of prison, what do they do? They go and they continue to preach the gospel. They go into the temple and they continue to preach the gospel. And you'd have thought, well, you know, perhaps in some situations we'd be more careful. But that's what God wanted them to do that's what the holy spirit led them to do so they're released from prison and they go back to preaching the gospel and eventually they're apprehended again in the temple this time and they are presented again to the jewish ruling council and peter and the apostles preach the same message when they're apprehended yet again to the chief priests and to the apostles that they did to the three thousand that they met here in Acts chapter 2, the same message. Have you ever read it and seen the similarities between the two? As we saw last week, they began by talking about Jesus. And they go on and they explain the exact same things that they had brought to that crowd in Acts 2. Even to the point of telling the council that it was they that had murdered Jesus by hanging him on a tree. But what was the response to the exact same message that had been preached? Well, in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the baptistry is working flat out because people have come to faith. And here, in Acts chapter 5, we discover that that's not what happened. We don't hear them crying out and saying, what shall we do? In fact, Acts 5 verse 33, 
when they heard this, the same message, they were furious and plotted to kill them. So why the difference? What's different between the two? The same message, but two different outcomes. Why? Well, I guess we need to turn the clock back and go back to Sunday evening and uh, to listen to David's message again. These guys are self-righteous. Who did Jesus come to save? You see, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And he alone does this. And now this morning, in the time that we have left, I want to look at the second question, what shall we do? And to do this, I want to consider just two points. And the first point I'm calling the self-awareness that the gospel reveals. Why do I say this? Because as Peter preached, and you look at his message, you find that his message is primarily about who Jesus Christ is and what exactly it is that Jesus Christ has done. Now, as Peter preached about Jesus, something happened in the minds and in the consciences of those who were listening. And I find it interesting that the people before Peter and the apostles actually said, what shall we do? Why do I find it interesting? I find it interesting because right up until this point, Peter hadn't told them that they had to do anything. He didn't even say that there was anything they could do. So what was it that drove them in asking this question? He wasn't talking about them. He was simply talking about Jesus. But as he talked about Jesus, the remarkable thing that happened was that something happened in their hearts. And of these people, it made them aware of their need. And as they became aware of Jesus, they also at the same time became aware of their sin. Now it's important that we understand what sin is about. And uh, I've got a visual to try and help us. Does anybody know what this is? <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a bow and arrow. I was expecting an arrow with a sucker on the end, but it hasn't come quite like that. So this, of course, is a bow and arrow. Now, uh, uh, we need a target. And of course, now we've got the target, we need a volunteer. Emma, you put your hand up. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to put your hand up on this one. So uh, we all know where you place the apple, don't we, Florrie? Okay. Now, would anybody ever dream of coming up here and putting an, an apple on the top of their head and allowing me to, to shoot? Is there any volunteers just before we do this? <laughs> okay. Adrian, never mind. We'll talk about it later. So I realize this is a dangerous weapon and we mustn't keep it loaded because I think this one looks pretty real to me. So, of course, the word sin comes from archery and it is uh, to miss the mark. So I think you pull the string back, you let the arrow fly, but you're meant to try and hit the apple on top of somebody. And of course, if you take their eye out, well, I mean, that's definitely sin involved there. So uh, that's what it comes from. Now, we're going to come back to the bow and arrow a little bit later. But uh, this is what the word sin means. It means to miss the mark. The people here were becoming aware of their sin. They were becoming aware of the fact that they were sinners. The word sin is not popular today. Society rejects the word. And uh, people all over the world and governments are even beginning to outlaw the language that is being spoken of here. Because we don't want to apply the word sinner to anybody, let alone ourselves. And now whilst the word sinner is an important word, it's not in everyday vocabulary, but it does originate uh, from the language used in archery. And uh, it's a case of missing the target. And it's a case simply that if you miss the target by one millimeter, it's called sin. If you miss the target by a centimeter, it's called sin. If you miss it by a meter, it's called sin. If you miss it by a kilometer, it is called sin. You see, sin is not a measurement of how bad we are. It's a measurement of how good we're not. If you miss the mark, you've missed the mark. Look at it this way. Uh, my wife's brother, 
was over from uh, the Netherlands this last week. So we've had a lot of fun and it's been good to catch up uh, with him during these few days. But if he goes to the airport and he misses his flight by one minute, he's missed his flight. Yeah? If he misses it by half an hour, he's missed his flight. It's gone without him. You see, the issue is not by how far we've missed the flight. The issue is, is that we've missed the flight. The issue is, is that we've come short. We've missed the target. And the big question really, of course, is what is the target? What have we missed? In Romans 3, in verse 23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that's a verse that many of us know really well. Many of us can quote it. But what does it mean? What does it really mean? We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, you see sometimes artistic pictures of, of saints and perhaps Jesus and God, and you see a halo that has been painted above someone's head. Is that the glory that we've missed? You know? I don't think you can see a halo above me. I'm absolutely sure of that. What does it mean? We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Well, the key is the word glory. What exactly is the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is the moral character of God, and the moral character of God was revealed in the person and the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, as Aaron read the Scriptures, he read that verse in, one, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, where John writes and says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now when John says we saw his glory, what did he mean? As I say, he doesn't mean a halo suspended six inches above the head of Jesus. No, he saw in Jesus the moral character of God. In other words, he was saying this, and I say this reverently, and you'll understand why I've put that in front of the following statement. Those of us who were kids in Nazareth, where Jesus was a boy and played in the streets, who went hunting in the woods and fishing in the river, we saw in the way he acted and reacted, the way he treated his friends, the way he talked to his mother, we saw what God was like. And when he began to work in his father's carpentry shop, the way that he went about his business, the way he paid the bills on time, the way he invoiced accurately for the work that was done, the way he got up early in the morning to put the roof back on the house that had been blown off the night before. We saw in his behavior what God is like. When he began his public ministry, the way that he crossed the road and sat next to an outcast of a woman who was abused in many respects, that everybody else was embarrassed to be seen with. We saw what God was like. The way he touched lepers. Nobody can touch a leper. They would come ringing a bell and saying, unclean. And when Jesus went up to them, the first thing he did was remove the bell and touch them. And when he did that, we saw what God was like. Because the glory of God is the moral character of God. And it was seen in Jesus. And that's why Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Friends, this morning, do you know what the glory of God is? And this morning I have to say to you that you will not know the glory of God until you see Jesus. And as Peter preached, 
the people began to understand. As he spoke about Christ, they began to understand because they begin to see Christ. As the Holy Spirit began to reveal to them, they began to realize something was wrong. And what was it? It was this, I am in need. You see, you'll never know what sin is like, what sin is, until you know what the mark is that you have missed. You can go to anyone on the street and say, hey, you're a sinner. And they'll probably get quite upset with you. And to be honest, for good reason. You see, they have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. They don't get it. Have you ever considered that point before? Let me illustrate. So, <laughs> I won't pick the arrow up just in case I'm tempted, but just imagine you're in a big field and you're going, okay, and you go in this direction, you know, you run over there, pick the arrow up, pick this one up and do something. And as you pull the string back, you feel your arms tensing and it feels good and the arrow flies high in the sky, bang. And then somebody comes up to you and says, that's great, so you can shoot an arrow. Now here's a target. And I'm stood 50 meters or however far it is you stand back and you aim and you release it and the arrow flies way off. And suddenly I feel different. Because now I understand what the target is. But in our lives we can so often just shoot arrows away and not realize. Yeah, you feel good, you feel confident, you let the arrow fly, but you totally miss the target because suddenly somebody has come in and said, here's the target. Hit it. You try. And this time you begin to feel discouraged. And you begin to feel despondent. When Peter preached Christ, he was setting up a target. He was saying this, you may be living ways in which you feel are okay, but this is not the character of God. Revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And as Peter preached that, the crowd in front of him suddenly realizes and they say, what should we do? You see, people are never aware of their sin until they're aware of Christ. Are you aware of Christ? Are you aware of what Christ has done for you? An archer doesn't know if he or she is good or bad until you set up the target and then they find out. As I was preparing this, I was listening to an account of a, a chap that didn't have any arms shooting an arrow. Okay, and he was up to Olympic standard. And I'm thinking to myself, this is unbelievable. Well, he did it with his feet. I heard the account of a Bible st uh, st uh, student at a Bible seminary, and he wanted to be an evangelist. God had called him to be an evangelist. And he believed that uh, if you're going to lead somebody to Christ, the very first thing you have to do is to make them aware of their sin. Now, I don't disagree with this in, in many respects, but bear with me. Because, as he would argue, unless somebody is aware of their sin, they will never be able to be aware of their need of salvation. And his method was to go up to people in the street and say something like this. Excuse me, did you know that you're a filthy, dirty, miserable, rotten, stinking sinner? And the result was that most people didn't respond very warmly to him. And he used to report back at the end of the week to the seminary of how people had persecuted him for righteousness sake. I think he got bopped on the nose a few times. Well, he wasn't persecuted for righteousness sake. He was persecuted for being rude and foolish. Now, it may be perfectly true that these people are dirty, filthy, miserable, rotten, stinking sinners. But they'd never know that 
until they knew what the target was, till they knew what it was that they were missing in their lives. Which is why in the first instance our task is to present Christ as Peter did here before this congregation. And as a result of presenting Jesus Christ, as we see here on this day of Pentecost, those people said, what shall we do? We have seen our sin. And in effect, they are saying, we've just realized something. What did they just realize? That we're dirty, filthy, miserable, rotten, stinking sinners. If you see a dog eating a bone, and you try to take the bone away from the dog, <laughs> the dog may well try and tear you to pieces because it's his bone. My parents had a cairn terrier that was exactly like that. This creature was cruel if it had a bone. You couldn't take anything away from it. But my mother had a trick which was to place something more desirable beside the dog and it would leave the bone or whatever it was it was chewing and she could take it away. You see, if you see a dog eating a bone and you put a piece of steak on the ground next to him, the dog will leave the bone and pick up the steak. And again, I say this reverently. Our job is to put the steak, if we're concerned about the bone, and reverently I say this, if you like, Christ is the steak. Peter's message does not talk about them, although he does say you crucified him. But they knew this. It was a historical fact. There was nothing new in their understanding about that. But as he talked about Christ, the Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ in the hearts of those who are listening. And that is necessary. It's vital. It's not simply an intellectual persuasion there is that revelation of the Holy Spirit which convicts us of sin. How does he do this? By convicting us of righteousness. Which is the character that we have seen in Christ. And because of that, they said, what should we do? And that's what happened here in Acts chapter 2. Having seen God in his, all his manifestations in the life of Christ and the beauty of that life, they see that something is wrong. You and I were created to be in God's image. That image is a moral image. And it was demonstrated in the person of Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And we see Jesus. When we see Jesus, we're putting up the target to shoot the arrow. But in doing that, we say, I can't. Because every time we've tried, we fail. We miss. And that, my friends, is why they cried out, Brothers, what should we do? Because they knew they couldn't. And I want to ask you this morning, have you reached that point in your own life? When you recognize your need and you also cry out, what must I do? Until that moment comes, you won't enter into spiritual reality with God. Friends, you can learn the language. There are many people who call themselves Christians and all they've managed to do is to pick up a few phrases that sound good, that make them appear right. Sometimes you can even mouth the terms of the Christian life. But until there is that sense of what can I do, what must I do, I need to do something because something is radically wrong here in my life. 
Now that's the self-awareness of the gospel. And it leads to my second point, which is the self-action of the, the, uh, of the gospel is required. Now by self-action I mean, they said, what shall we do? Now Peter's message had been all about who Christ is and what Christ has done. But friends, that's not enough. Now you might be worried again at that statement. Bear with me. We have to do something to appropriate and enter into the good of what Christ has done. And Peter stresses this here in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, when he says this. He says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now when he says save yourselves, he's not talking about some means of salvation through human works. He's already declared Christ as the one who died and who has satisfied the justice of God on our behalf as a substitute. Christ has died for the sins of the world, but your sins will never come under the death of Christ and receive the benefit of his death until you do something, says Peter. You've got to save yourselves from this perverse generation. You've got to do something, says Peter. And friends, you have to do something. You may be here regularly, week after week, or this may be the first time you've come, but you still have to do something. If ever the Christian life is going to become experiential to you and to be real to you, you see, the Christian life doesn't happen through some process of osmosis. Now you're thinking about to biology. What in the world is osmosis? And I know there's some clever people here and you can find one of them and ask them afterwards. But it's when uh, um, uh, something travels through a membrane just because it's there and, uh, and, and you can find that it's, it affects what's next to it. You don't just pick up the Christian life subliminally and it becomes part of you. You don't become a Christian by just hanging around Christians. You don't become a Christian just by being in church here this morning. You don't become a Christian by being part of a Christian family, although many people seem to think that that's all that's required. My mum and dad, my grandparents all went to church, therefore I must be okay. No. We have to do something to become a Christian. That's deliberate and willful. And there are two key words that Peter gives in his answer to the question when they say, what should we do? Peter replied in verse 38 and said, repent. Now that's another word people don't like to hear about today, isn't it? Repent. That's the first key word. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive, that's the second key word, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the key words are firstly repent, and the second, receive. You have to do something. Repent and God will do something. He will give to you the gift of the Holy Spirit and that's what you receive as he gives the Spirit, the Holy Spirit to you. These two things are essential to salvation. The need to repent and the need to receive. Now let me talk about the word repent. Again, it's not a word that's in everyday use in our vocabulary. It's not a word that we really like to use. But the word repent has a very specific meaning. It means to change the mind. That's its specific meaning. It comes from the Greek word metanomia. Meta to change. So the word metamorphosis talks about change. Anoia is the mind. You see, repentance is not essentially an emotional response. It is not, in the first instance, a volitional response that is an act of the will. It is the first, in the first instance, an intellectual response. It's something that goes on in the mind. It's a change of mind. It may have its emotional effect, of course, and it will have its volitional consequences but it is essentially a change of mind. A change of mind based on an understanding of certain things. Certain things that are true. Certain things that you didn't know were true, 
before and now I understand them to be true and my mind changes. You only change your mind because you're persuaded by the truth as the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to you. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 23, the writer states, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. You don't need me to tell you this. But you are what you think. Truthfully, we do not even need Scripture to explain and to confirm this to us. We know it already. As we think, so we are. Because our minds are crucial to everything else. And repentance is about a change of mind. But a change of mind about what? Well, it is a change of mind about God, recognizing who He is. It's a change of mind about Jesus Christ. It's as Peter preached here in Acts chapter 2, he finished by saying, Let all Israel therefore know that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus is Lord. And that is a reality. You change your mind about yourself, you realize that I'm insufficient, alone. I was never intended to live by human resources alone. Why? Because I can't do it. I am inadequate. I am insufficient for it. You change your mind about your sin and you call it what God calls it, sin. It seems to me that the initial avenue of all spiritual experience is in the mind. It begins with understanding. And this is what you find in, Peter's, uh, sorry, in Paul's letters time and time again, isn't it? When the Apostle Paul says, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know this? And we see those words repeated time and time again. Don't you know because you need to know. Because what you understand then influences your mind and repentance is a change of mind. Repentance is an ongoing process as your mind becomes conformed to the truth of God. That's why preaching and teaching have a prominent place in the church of Jesus Christ today. And we'll never understand life, we'll never understand the world, we'll never fully understand ourselves until we know God. Now, Peter might have said to uh, these people, in your ignorance, you handed Jesus Christ over and put him to death. Paul later preached in Acts 17 to the Greek philosophers in Athens, and he talks about some of their notions and ideas, and he says, now in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. You simply did not know, but now... Know what? Now there's a revelation you can understand. And in chapter 17, verse 30, I think, Paul goes on and says, and he commands all people everywhere to repent. And you may be here this morning, and you've still never understood some of these things. And of course, you can't act on what you don't understand. But you're beginning to understand. And as Paul says in that verse, in Acts 17, God overlooked such ignorance. He doesn't hold us responsible for ignorance unless we've closed our minds to things. But now it's been revealed. And as a result, he commands us to repent. Put simply, he commands you to change your mind in conformity to what you now understand. Have you done that? Have you changed your mind about God, about Jesus, about yourself, and about your need, and about your sin? Repentance involves both a positive and a negative confession. 
It requires that you confess things that are true because now you recognize them to be true and your mind conforms to them. The positive confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was what Peter had preached as the conclusion of his message here in Acts 2. And Paul had written in Romans 10 and verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You confess Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the positive confession. You recognize who Jesus Christ is. And as Lord, I must, I must come into relationship with Him. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord? And then there's the negative confession, the confession of sin. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, the barrier that keeps us separated from God is the barrier of our sin. And as it becomes exposed, we stop all excuses. And we stand before God as guilty and we acknowledge it and we confess it. And we recognize that Jesus Christ bore our guilt in his body, on the cross. And so Peter says, repent, change your mind, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, if you take that uh, last section of the verse out of context, then you can begin to think that repentance and baptism are necessary in order to be forgiven. But actually, as you read elsewhere in Scripture, and even as you look at the original language here, baptism does not and is not the cause of forgiveness. But it is an expression of the fact that I have come to Christ. I recognize that I am crucified with him, buried with him, raised again to walk in newness of life. And it's an outward expression of inward spiritual reality into which you have entered. In fact, in verse 41 here in Acts 2, he says, So those who accepted the message were baptized and 3,000 were added to their number that day. That is when they accepted and responded in repentance, they were baptized as an expression of what had taken place in their hearts. You know, forgiveness is one of the greatest needs of the human heart, isn't it? Why? Because we have a conscience that God has given to us. And in the book of Romans, Paul talks about the fact that Gentiles who do not know the law of God do by nature the things that are in the law. Why? Paul says, because their conscience bears witness with them. Now it's true, and the Bible also warns us, that we can damage our conscience and we can pierce it. Pierce it through. It says that we can distort our conscience. We can begin to house train our conscience, if you like. Nothing worse than a house trained Christian. What I mean by that is someone who's not saved, but gives the impression they are. We can train our conscience into a sense that right is wrong and wrong is right. But we have a conscience that has been God-given and we recognize that we have sinned because all have sinned and all come short of the glory of God. No one is an exception to that. And that's why the crowd said, what should we do? Because their consciences have been awakened. The reason why God makes us aware of our guilt is never in order to condemn us. It's never in order to humiliate us. It's never to rub our noses in our own dirt, but he makes us aware of our guilt for one reason, that he might cleanse us and forgive us and impart new power into our hearts and into our lives. So Peter says to this crowd before him, you change your mind about God and change your mind about yourself and about your sin." and you'll be forgiven. You come to confession of your sin, and you're forgiven, and you're cleansed. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to know that your sin 
has been cleansed. I read recently that 95% of cases of insanity and those that are dealing with some mental health issues have their roots in unresolved guilt and a refusal to accept forgiveness. Now, truthfully, I can't verify that figure. It seems mighty high to me. But it did come from a reliable news magazine that is generally to be trusted. Now he says, you do something, you repent, and God does something. You'll receive the Holy Spirit, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is the inevitable response of repentance that clears the deck in order that the Holy Spirit might come to impart life and character and strength and motivation and new appetites. God does not say repent and you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, perhaps in due time. Or he doesn't say repent that you may leave yourself eligible to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, maybe sometime in the future. No, God says repent and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's not the getting rid of our sin in itself that makes us a Christian. Have you ever considered that before? What makes you a Christian is the Holy Spirit coming and living within you. And that is what is meant by regeneration, the reception of new life. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, says Paul in Romans 8 verse 9, he does not belong to Christ. Let me say that verse again to you. Romans 8 verse 9. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. Because having been forgiven, the impartation of the Holy Spirit is what makes us a Christian. Now this is the part that you'll never understand unless the Holy Spirit brings enlightenment. So it all begins with God moving in our hearts and lives through the Holy Spirit. Which he will as you listen to God speaking, particularly as you read his word. It's about new life that changes us from the inside outward. You say, well, how does this become true for me? Because there are some of us here this morning, here in this tent, and this has never become a living experience to you. Well, let me put it this way. It's as easy as A, B, C. And I know some people get uneasy about the word easy. But listen, I'll give you three key words. You need to admit your need. A, admit. You need to admit that you are a sinner. You need to admit that you cannot be what you were created to be because of sin. And your sin is simply the symptom of that need. You need to admit it. B, you need to believe Jesus Christ was God, who became man, who lived a perfect life, who died on a Roman cross, was buried, raised again by his Father, ascended to heaven, poured out the Holy Spirit, and now is Lord and King. And that's the summary of Peter's message. And by the way, Acts 2 you need to believe it. You don't have to understand it all. There are many things that I believe that I just don't fully understand. I don't take it seriously anymore when people say to me, well, I'll believe when I can understand everything. There are lots of things that we believe but we don't fully understand. I don't understand how a message and even a picture from somebody can appear on my phone. I just don't get it. But I believe it does. But I don't understand how. How can it go through a wall? 
In respect to the Christian life, there are many things which I'm only just beginning to understand. But I've believed them. The key is not understanding the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. No, belief is the key. That means you get on the plane and you let it fly even though you don't understand how it stays in the air. We need to believe it and come and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I give myself to you. I believe that you are who you claim to be. But actually, believing in itself doesn't make you a Christian either. Because there's the letter C. And the letter C brings me back to Bill Boot and my conversation. It has to. I'm sorry, Marianne. Because Bill said to me, you've got to commit your life to him. And so the letter C is commit. You've got to say, because it's true, I'm going to get on the plane, going back to my analogy of the plane, not understanding how it stays in the sky, but I'm going to fly. I get on, I don't understand it all, but I believe. I may not understand everything at the moment, but I'm going to say to Jesus, I give myself to you. And you know, as I said earlier, you do not become a Christian by hanging around Christians. It's not like a disease that you catch. It's a deliberate, willful choice. As deliberate as getting on the plane. You become a Christian because of what you understand about God. You change your mind. You repent. And you conform with your mind to his truth. You believe in Jesus. You confess your sin and you surrender yourself to him without any reserve at all that he might come and make his dwelling place in your heart to live with you and to guide you and to empower you for his life and for this life. And when this life ends, to take you home to be forever with him in his presence. What should we do? We do, as Peter explained, repent, change our mind. Yes, be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it all begins because the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. And he convicts us of righteousness. And because all of a sudden, we see what the target is. It's his righteousness.